And welcome back to the Inadvertent Whistle Podcast. This is episode three, and I am Scott Bockhans, and I'm joined by my co-host and friend, Adam Brick. And Adam, episode three, we're going to talk about a few things, uh, specifically with our communication with coaches and players, but also we're getting into the holiday tournament season, so we want to talk about some holiday spirit. So uh, any opening comments you want to share with the group? Well, I'm just thankful that today for, for the holidays, we have a very special guest in studio today. Um, he actually needs no introduction, but I will try to do my best to do that, and then Scott will make corrections where necessary. But we have Steve Gordon in studio with us, um, and it's an honor and a privilege to have him here for a variety of reasons, not the least of which he's a great individual and knows a whole ton about refereeing basketball and the game of basketball. Um, and so we're excited to have him throughout today's broadcast and hope to bring you some holiday cheer throughout it. So, Adam, as you mentioned, Steve Gordon is joining us today. And I want to go through a little bit about Steve's background. Steve's got 32 years of officiating experience, 25 of those 32 years at the Division One level. 22 of those 25 were in the ACC, where he worked 17 ACC tournaments, and he worked in the NCAA tournament for 10 years. At a high school level, he did three AAA state finals, which is the equivalent of a 6A final for us now. So, Obviously, we're talking about somebody that has a great lineage of experience and can really provide a lot of details into how to improve as an official. So, Steve, I'm just going to jump right in and ask you a question here. Um, we're getting into the holiday tournament season, and a lot of the times we'll be working games with uh, maybe a local school, and then one of the teams that we have might be from out of town. So uh, maybe you can share with, with our officials maybe some ideas of you know, how do you handle that situation of, of balancing the local team and the out-of-town team and making sure that the out-of-town team feels right at home as well? So, Steve, you got any uh, thoughts on that? Well, Scott, first of all, it's great to be with you and Adam. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with you today and to be with everyone listening in. Um, I think one of the things that we talk about uh, and should focus on when we talk about holiday tournaments and especially those that are displaced and coming from far away uh, is the fact that the recognition that they, they're in an unfamiliar place. Um, the kids are out of their routine. The coaches certainly are out of their routine. Um, they've traveled some distance to get there, and even if they haven't traveled a long way, it's normally an unusual environment for them. And to make sure that, uh, you know, that they feel comfortable, um, there is a recognition. Make sure that you know, there's, a, there's a firm handshake. Make sure that you let them know you appreciate the fact that they're there. Um, you're going to do your level best. Uh, to give them a fair shake and then proceed to do that. And make sure you communicate that with your partners so that uh, there's a good start and we lay a foundation for having a positive relationship with them during the course of the individual game. Steve, another topic that I think is pertinent here today, I know for me at least as well, is that the game of basketball and officiating basketball has meant a lot to, to us personally. For example, with me, I've met, le met my lovely bride through officiating. Uh, my better half, uh, she's the better half in many ways, including refereeing. Um, but I also know that in terms of friendships and family, there's a tight-knit relationship for you in the game of basketball and officiating. I wonder if you can share that with our listeners. Well, Adam, appreciate the opportunity to, to share that. I think there's, in the Gordon family, there's a genetic predisposition to officiating. Um, my dad, Ralph Gordon, officiated for 25 years. He was involved administratively for between 30 and 35 years in Northern Virginia. Um, it's sort of where I, I got my chops and first uh, began to, to express an interest and get involved in officiating. 
and my dad had a unique approach, which was to stay as far away from me as he possibly could when I first started. Um, the amazing thing about that was, as I think the genetics took over, um, I gave, took up the game and started officiating, loved it, uh, followed you know, with his lead, and uh, always enjoyed uh, what I was doing based on the fact that uh, he truly loved the people involved in the relationships that he cultivated. Uh, now what's interesting is, is uh, my son Danny has just uh, come through the applicant class and passed the international exam and passed the state exam. And we're very excited about the fact that uh, he's expressed uh, an interest and is now directly involved in officiating as well. So once again, from a family standpoint and a relationship standpoint, um, it's, it's a very exciting time for our family. So, Steve, obviously you must be really proud of the fact that Danny decided that I know that you're not the kind that pushes anybody in along the way, but um, the fact that he's decided to jump into this uh, vocation I'm sure is – exciting for you and a lot of us as well we've we've known Danny for a couple of years now and get, to get an opportunity to see him grow will be fun um, another area regarding basketball fishing Adam talked about how his wife um, is a basketball official and that's how he met Chrissy uh, I had six officials in my wedding um, and and there's a lot of relationships that really is really what basketball is all about can you talk about some of the guys that you refereed with over the years, some some names that many will remember, and just maybe what these guys are doing now and, and maybe tell us about how you've kept in touch with them over the years? Well, the relationships, to be very honest with you, you know, with the, the amount of money that's in the game now and the individuals that are working, the young people coming along, um, I, I kind of think that sometimes there's a gap related to the relationships. Um a lot of people sometimes will get move up the ladder very quickly, and uh, you know I, I I worry that the relationships that were cultivated back when I started when I started working college basketball, which was in 1981-82, um, the relationships that were cultivated and formed back then were lifelong relationships. Uh, perfect example being uh, Rick Hartzell. Uh, Rick Hartzell and Frank Scagliata and I refereed 22 games one season together. Hartzell and I refereed 26 together that same season. Um, Rick also happens to be my youngest, son, my youngest son, Danny, who's just started officiating. It happens to be his godfather. So the types of relationships, the closeness that we established over many, many years uh, were terrific. And, of course, Rick is still working, which is hard for me to believe, but at 65 years old, he's going through his swan song season. Rick and I talk all the time. But a number of people that, that, uh, that we had relationships with, a lot of them are the younger guys that came along. Brian Kersey, of course, is now taken over as the supervisor of officials in the ACC. Brian and I have a very close relationship. We touch base periodically. Roger Ayers and Mike Eads, we talk to each other um, periodically. But some of the older guys um, have moved on, and a number of them have passed on. One of the guys that helped me in terms of cutting my teeth when I first started was Lenny Wirtz. And Lenny was a remarkable individual in a lot of different ways, but one of the most amazing things was he worked the national final two-man in the 60s, and well into the 90s, he was still working a big-time college schedule. Um, Lenny was one of the great administrators, and Lenny used to conduct a pregame that if you worked a tournament on a Friday and a Saturday night with him and you had the same crew, on Friday night you'd go through the pregame, and on Saturday night, if you had a recording, you could just play it again because he went over exactly the same stuff. But I established a relationship with Len. We were good friends until his passing a couple of years ago. 
Um, but he was the type of guy that would make sure that everything you did was right. And if you didn't, you didn't last very long because Lenny would report that back to the supervisor. And so it was a relationship based on your conduct, your performance, and the way that you performed on his crew. Steve, hearing your stories about you know guys like uh, Mike Eads, who I've refereed with, Roger Ayers, uh, obviously Kersey, but you know Lenny Works is somebody that I uh, like to watch on TV when I first uh, came up as an official, you know, 26 years ago, and uh, you know, which is going to segue us into our mailbag portion. And we got an email here. Uh, first email we're going to talk about is from Matt Needham. So Matt sends this email. Uh, it says, "Hey guys." New Cardinal official here. When you were new, what did you do to evaluate your games and make sure you were improving to become a better official? So um, I'll hit this first, and then Adam, I'll let you touch on this. But, you know, Matt, I, I would say that I had really good mentors. You know, we didn't have as much video back then, although there was an opportunity to get some game tapes in certain schools. Uh, Dick Myers at Gonzaga High School used to hand me beta tapes and then VHS tapes. Uh, and I would... Go pick up uh, a twelve pack of beer and head over to a couple of other guys' house, uh, Mike Davis, and uh, you know we would have uh, a bunch of guys just break down videotape. Uh, it was a little more brutal. Uh, you know, a game's only thirty two minutes long. We'd be there for an hour and a half, but uh, it's it's the way that I got better was to find myself on tape. And now that we have huddle, you know, getting opportunities to watch games on tape was a is, is a big thing for me. But I think also just having a mentor. Staying around after games, making sure that you have an opportunity to listen to what the veteran officials are saying and how they communicate with each other uh, is a great way to learn because it's also, it's not just you learn the right things to do, but you also learn the the wrong things to do. And you can take a lot of what they're providing and and you can filter it in and out. And that will help, uh, you know, really connect your style. The, the, The second piece that I'll say before I hand it over to Adam is, uh, I worked a lot of, of, of ball games. I worked a, a, a lot of rec games, and I think that was a big piece for me. Um, you know, working uh, my first two years, I probably worked over 100 ball games each year. It just got my eyes trained to see certain plays, and it really helped me uh, along the way, just getting you know my eyes set on certain plays. And um, when I got to a point where, and I'll tell you this quick story, I got to a point where I was refereeing uh, I, I got to a point where I was I was having a lot of technical fouls. I, I would tee up everybody. And I remember uh, this just like yesterday, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Scott Foster, who's now an NBA referee, said, I want you to go out and work men's rec, A-League, you know, the, the, the highest league, you know, because all these guys, they already know all the answers for refereeing. But I, I want you to go out there and I want you to referee the games. And for every technical foul you, you have, you owe me 20 bucks. Um, and, you know, for a three-game set of A-League, you know, you could probably have, you know, five, six, seven technical fouls easy. Um, and I'm happy to say that that was a great teaching tool. It learned, I learned quickly how to how to talk through things with players uh, or maybe just have more of a conversation with them. That really helped me uh, in my process. But, um, you know, I, I, and I, and I will say I, I, did, I did have to pay Scott 20 bucks uh, but it was it was worth it uh, that night. So anyway, uh, that that would be my uh, pieces of advice. So Adam, I don't know if you want to chime in with anything else on that. 
Yeah, Scott, my first question is, if you brought a 12-pack with you to the to watch video, what did everybody else get to drink? Because I'm pretty confident you went right through that 12-pack, particularly in your younger days. Um, but Matt, I thought you had asked a great question, and one of the things uh, that I think is important for any young official, and actually any official, is for the willingness to get better. And in order to do that, I think two of the very most important traits uh, that we can have our self-awareness and reflection. So going into each game, are we willing to, uh, to examine what we've done, why we did it, how we did it, how could we do it better? Can you pick something in each game to work on? Can you get something, a, a lesson out of each game? Uh, and that really takes a, a critical analysis of yourself, whether you have tape or not. Uh, going back and, and reviewing the, the game in your head, could I have done something better uh, to improve the game for the crew? And the answer to that is always going to be yes, because there's no such thing as the perfectly officiated game, uh, even, uh, even when Scott referees the game. Um, so I think that's critical for improvement as officials. I also think the willingness, uh, particularly early in your career, to go to camps. And let me put a plug in, to, he's in our studio today, for the Steve Gordon uh, Cardinal Basketball Officials Camp, which this summer uh, coming up will be June 22nd to June 23rd at George Mason University in conjunction with the Dave Paulson Camp. And referees can't get any better instruction uh, and clinicians than at that camp that's going to be coming up. And I know that information will be out within the next month or so. The, the other piece of advice uh, that I'd give, Matt, to your question kind of echoes what, what Scott talked about in finding mentors and, and, and the willingness to stay for the varsity game as a non-varsity official. Watch what the varsity officials do and, and add to your repertoire the things that you like. Pick and choose from each official uh, and also identify the things that you wouldn't do uh, without being critical of, of the varsity officials that you're watching. And the last thing I'd say as officials that we have to do is find our empathy for what the coaches and the players are going through. Um, at the end of the day, officials don't care who wins and loses games. And we're the only two or three people in the whole gym that don't care who wins and loses. So we have to find that empathy for what the coaches and the players are going through. They practice for days preparing for a game, uh, and we just show up. And, and referee the game for an hour and a half to two hours. Um, so when, when kids and, and coaches you know, get a little emotional, it's our job to stay even keeled. Uh, the only way I think we can do that is to find empathy for the things that they go through uh, and put ourselves in that position. Some of us have played before. Uh, some of us um, maybe have coached our kids' teams in some way, shape, or form. So what, what I would suggest is just trying to put yourself in their shoes for a little bit. And I think that's something that helps train your mind uh, for the game management piece to refereeing basketball, which is as critical as it gets if you want to become a really, really solid high school basketball official. So, Scott, we have another email in our mailbag at brickandbach at gmail.com. And this one comes from David Posner, who has already had the unfortunate pleasure of working with me twice this season. So maybe that's why he sent the email in. 
And the question is not, how do I get Adam Brick off my schedule? Um, the question is, how should a JV or young varsity official begin to build trust and relationships with coaches? Uh, David, that's a great question. I, I believe that communication skills and game management skills are what begin to separate the good or average official to the, to the great official or the elite official. Um, for young officials, I would say the most important thing you can do when coaches have a question or a legitimate comment is for you to acknowledge that you've heard what they had to say. And there are so many different ways you can do that. You can do that talking to them. It can be a nod of the head. Um, it can be a look. It could be a variety of things, body language. It, how you present yourself to a coach when he or she is talking to you is critically important. You cannot turn a deaf ear to them or a blind eye. There's nothing more that will frustrate a coach than he or she believing that you are not listening to them. Uh, but let's make no mistake about it. The very first thing we need to do to establish relationships and trust with coaches is to get the plays right. Get the plays right. Communicate what we have to the table and the coaches and the players when we tell our story after we put air in the whistle. So you may have a great call, but when you make that report to the table, that's your chance to get them to believe what you're selling. And so it's important that you do that in a way that's consistent, that's not over the top, but it's also not seen as meek or weak. Uh, the other thing in my mind with that is it's it's really simple. If you don't know what to say, don't say anything at all to coaches. Um, it's okay to give one or two word answers. But again, the most important thing you can do to build that trust and relationship is to let them know that you've heard what they had to say and that you're fair uh, and, and you're seen as a person. Um, Steve, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts you want to add to that? Adam, I do, and I, I appreciate you laying the foundation. Uh, I'll just share one personal experience. Um, when I got on the ACC staff, uh, I figured that if I got all the calls right, that I was going to be accepted and I was going to be on my way. And it only took about a year and a half to two years when I had an issue with Coach Dave Odom at Wake Forest uh, in a game at Davidson where, to be honest with you, we really weren't very good. Uh, but the key was not the fact that we missed a bunch of calls. Uh, the key was is that I was not receptive, and I had basically put up a barrier figuring I get these plays right, I'm going to be in good shape. And the reality was all Dave Odom wanted me to do was be human, be real, and just simply communicate with him as though we were had, had a conversation going on. Um, and again, not an extended conversation, but just a few key words here and there. And I developed uh, from that, he gave me another chance. And the reality was he ended up being one of my greatest supporters in the ACC. Part of that and what that established at that point in time was is what I call the open face, which is nonverbal communication. It's raised eyebrows. It's looking directly in, at someone when you speak to them. Um, and it's being very passive, but at the same time, making an effort to communicate with as few words as possible but in a very conversational way, letting them know that you're approachable, you hear what they're saying, and you're acknowledging that we are communicating back and forth, and you hear what they say. So, Steve, in that year and a half where it took you to realize that it wasn't just about getting the calls right, what were the elements or the things that 
had the light bulb go off in your head? Well, part of what happened was is is I think I think my ratings suffered um, not so much with fellow officials, but with the coaches. Um, I didn't seem to be getting the traction that I was looking for, and I think part of it was is because I was consistent, and they were consistent in not being impressed by my officiating, and certainly by me as an individual, because the reality was is they really weren't getting to know me as an individual. They didn't know the sound of my voice. Um, I may have been getting the calls right. But I've always believed that there's a um, chronology to relationships with coaches and officials. And the first is is that they want to believe you. They want to believe what you're doing. They want you to show confidence. They want you to have an ability to, to, to say, yes, I got this right. I know I got it right. And, uh, and that's all well and good. But after you've worked their games for three or four different nights, um, the reality is when you really have arrived – is when they believe in you. When they look at you and they recognize that there's a credibility, you're consistent, you're consistent in your communication with them, and all of a sudden they know who you are and they know what you're about. And I think that's where you develop a true relationship in terms of coaches and officials. Obviously, I don't really have much to add on to what Stephen Adam already said, but if I was going to say anything in addition to this is, you still have to be yourself. You cannot go out and be Adam Brick. You cannot be uh, Steve Gordon. You can't be Gil Mack. You have to stay within your own personality frame. So if you're somebody that uh, has trouble in communicating, obviously I would work with a mentor. But you just can't go in and, and share one-liners and expect it to be, uh, you know, hear Adam tell a story and then use that one-liner and expect it to have the same result. So um, we definitely want to make sure that our young officials, those that are up and coming, uh, as you hear some of these these great uh, stories and feedback, that you can use some things, filter them in and out, but you still have to be yourself at the end of the day. So um, nonverbal communication, obviously, is probably the biggest first step that you can take, like Steve shared. You know, Make sure that they know that you're acknowledging them, even if you just give them a thumbs up or a nod of the head. Um, sometimes that's all it takes. So... Um, you know, it's probably a good transition time, though, to get into our pet peeves. And so I know that uh, we have a few. And, uh, Adam, I think uh, this might be a good segue for you to kind of get into, you know, how we communicate with players, which is your pet peeve this week. So, Adam, why don't you share that with us? So today's pet peeve segment is brought to you by our newest sponsor, the Steve Gordon Cardinal Basketball Officials Camp. So we're, we're happy to have them aboard as a sponsor and continue to have Steve in studio with us today. Now, my pet peeve for this time of year is communications with players and how we treat players. It's imperative upon us, incumbent upon us, to treat players as people, to treat them in the way we would like them to treat us. So talk with them, not at them. When we have captain's meeting, my goal is to make sure I learn the captain's names because I think I get a lot more out of a kid when I say, hey, Mike, as opposed to, hey, number 10. I think I get a, a little bit more of a relationship and a little bit more rapport with that kid uh, during the course of the game when I need his help. Uh, the captains aren't picked out of a hat. Their coaches pick them because they're leaders of their team, and we need to use them as such. During a game, if, if players are taunting and baiting with each other, my patience and tolerance for that is pretty slim uh, because that's going to lead to other problems in the game. But let's take an example of a situation where a team is, is getting blown out it's middle of the of the second half, 
and a kid reacts to a call, uh, not nothing too demonstrative, but surely shows some disgust, and, and, and maybe you say something to the kid, and, and he gives you a little lip back, but that lip doesn't include foul language. Um, it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't rise to the level of of being unsportsmanlike. We need to rise above that uh, and take a step back and have some empathy for the position that the kid is in. Uh, they're getting their butts handed to them. They're getting frustrated. Uh, maybe they like a call or don't like a call that we made. Um, when we give a kid a technical foul in that situation, we're probably just throwing a little bit of fuel on the fire, a little feeling that it's potentially becoming five on eight. And, and we need to kind of manage that game in such a way that we can talk the kid off the ledge. Or maybe that's when you go back to the captain, Mike, and say, Mike, I need your help with number 22. Um, or you go to the coach. I mean, this goes back to us talking about your relationship with coaches. If you go to a coach and say, I'm really struggling with number 22, can you please help me? Um, most of our high school coaches are going to take that kid out of the game or at least talk to that kid uh, as an educational piece. So, again, for me, don't necessarily go to the holster right away when a kid is talking to us, uh, particularly if a lot of people haven't heard what the kid had to say. Steve, would you like to share one of your pet peeves with our listeners today? Well, Adam, I think uh, from the standpoint of uh, observers, and since I have retired, retired in 2008 and been an observer uh, from that point on, um, I've, I've gotten some pet peeves. And a part of it is, is just the receptivity to comments. You know, you have observers that are making an effort to help, making an effort to improve, making an effort to uh, add to your game as a working official, and there's only one reason they're there, and that is, in fact, to give you positive or constructive feedback related to the game that you're working and the way that you're working the game. And the disturbing aspect to me is is when somebody says, yeah, but, or uh, does not take wh what you're saying, um, you know, into in, to heart. And bottom line is, is that you always can tell. You can tell by the body language. You can tell by somebody turning away from you. You can tell by somebody's expression on their face. Um, the reality is, is any observer is there for you, trying to make you better, and just keep that in mind in terms of your development as an official. Uh, Scott, you got a pet peeve you'd like to share? Yeah, Steve, thanks. Um, so my, my pet peeve has to do with something completely different. I've, I've been watching a lot of video lately, and there seems to be a, a common theme recently, and that's the fact that sometimes we lack common sense as officials. Uh, one of the things that we're tasked with is being the uniform police, and it sucks. And I don't think any of us in this room really want to deal with it, and as many of you that are listening don't want to be the uniform police. But there are some things. I mean, if, if, a, if a player comes in with a red shirt and he has a white undershirt, yeah, the player has to take that, that shirt, um, that undershirt off. It has to match the same color. Those are That's a basic formula. But one of the things that we lack is making sure we provide the right communication. So... Uh, recently watched in a game where one official came over to the player and said, you can't wear that shirt underneath and told him he had to go change it. What he didn't do is make sure that they knew where he had to change it. You know, if you have to change your shirt, you have to leave the visual confines of the playing area. And, and usually you go out with an assistant coach and they help you. Uh, what ends up happening, though, is the kid just wants to get out and play right away. So 
if you don't tell them those exact specific things or the coach, then what ends up happening is the player gets rid of the jersey, gets rid of the undershirt. Uh, now they're bare-chested, and we put ourselves into a pickle. And in the video I saw, a second official came over and informed the player that they couldn't change right there, and as a result, there was a technical foul. Now, the official that, that had this call was a young official, one of our, our younger varsity officials. We had two veterans on the crew, and I really wish that one of the veterans would have stepped in and said, well, wait a second. Um, you know, veteran number one, what did you tell them about where to change the shirt? And, and unfortunately, um, that information was never taken care of. So I, I'll give you a little example. I, did the, uh, I had the pleasure of doing the Westfield uh, Holiday Tournament Championship game a few years ago. And one of my partners, Jeff Wiggins, and I'm sure Jeff doesn't mind me sharing this, uh, he had a situation where uh, one of the players had blood on his jersey for Westfield and told the player that he had to go change his jersey. But uh, when he called me over, he said, where does he, you know, where does he have to change his shirt? And I said, well, he can't be in the gym. It has to be outside the, the gym, outside the visual confines. And right then and there, the player was disheveling his shirt. And I said, well, did you tell the player? And he said, no, I just told him that he had to change his shirt. Um, so by rule, if you want to stick in black and white, yeah, that's a technical foul. But if we're the ones that are giving that information, we've got to have the common sense to be able to go back and say, listen, um, we made a mistake by telling the, the player that they could just change uh, and not giving them the additional information. Therefore, we're not going to have a technical. And that night, um, I ate the technical. I wasn't going to provide a technical because we didn't do the right thing. And I think that for, for veteran officials, if you have uh, somebody that's young on your crew or an up-and-coming official, you know, it's our job to make sure that we protect them from doing things like that. So that would be my pet peeve uh, for this week. So um, hopefully you, know, you gained something out of our pet peeves for this week. And um, I think it's a, a good time maybe if we uh, look at story time. So let's go right into story time. And, and Adam, I'm going to ask you maybe if you lead us off with story time and we'll let Steve uh, finish this up. So, Adam, you got a good story for us? Yes, Scott, it is story time. And staying on the topic of families and, and friendships and the holidays, I'd like to relate a, just a quick story of, from back in 2008. Uh, Chrissy and I had had our first child in November of 2008, and she was coming back to the court for the first time. And it was over at Wakefield. She had the uh, 6 o'clock game, and I had the 7.30. Uh, and it was in the old gym. And if you recall, at the old gym at, at Wakefield, you would walk in, from one end, and then you had to walk the entire length of the court to get to our locker room. And I'm coming with the baby because at the time Cecil knew we, you know, we could, both couldn't be out at the same time. And so we're going to make the baby switch uh, in between games. And so here I come in Wakefield. I've got my officiating gear. I'm pushing a stroller. I got the, uh, the diaper bag and, and all the other baby paraphernalia that first-time parents bring everywhere they go w with their babies. Uh, and, and Tony and Buck from the Wakefield staff and, and the rest of the guys on the staff were, were getting a kick out of me coming in with a baby and, and all the, the, the other stuff that goes along with it. So we had a good laugh about that. And one of the things that I, that I think that that does um, is it allows us to relate to coaches and, and other folks involved with the game as people. They realize that we are actually real live people who aren't just wearing stripes 24-7. Um, and so, again, the game of basketball has given me a lot of lifelong 
friends, and, and obviously family. So it's been very important to me, and I hope that uh, you know at this time of the holiday season in particular, people think of the, all the family members that have helped them get where they are and all the relationships and friendships that we've developed over the years from refereeing basketball. And uh, Steve, is there a story you'd like to share with us as well? Well, capitalizing on the relationship theme, <clears throat> uh, I, I, I go back to uh, uh, the early 90s uh, when I had an opportunity to work in the Atlantic 10, and it was my first assignment with one of the legends of the game, and that's Mickey Crowley. Uh, if ever there was, if there was, ever there was a New Yorker who was all about New York, it was Mickey, and Mickey was one of the great individuals and great characters ever to work the game. Mickey had some, uh, Mickey had some, some. Uh, habits that he used to he used to get into and one of those was is uh, he was happy to get the game finished and get to the bar or the restaurant as you will but we uh, in this particular game no problems in the game moved through it very quickly our post game was not conducted in the locker room our post game was conducted at the local bar and Mickey had a habit of always drinking uh, two seven and sevens and then three Heineken's. That was his post game. Um, I, on the other hand, for a long period of time, have been a teetotaler. So we're having conversations about the game. We're having conversations about families, having conversations about uh, officiating. And uh, Mickey looks at me and says, Stevie, he said, I feel sorry for you guys that don't drink. And I said, Mick, why is that? He says, because when you wake up tomorrow, that's the best you're going to feel all day long. So today we're joined by our rules interpreter, Mike Preston. And I, I got to tell you, I still think Mike Preston is the number one rules interpreter in the country, does a great job with the way that he communicates. And today we asked him to join us because we're having uh, a lot of uh, information passed back and forth. Some of it is not correct and some of it uh, is correct. But Mike does a great job talking about the IAC and the MAC rules with the shot clock, the throw-in spots, and the coaching box. Mike is absolutely the best rules interpreter that I know. Also, the only one that I know. So, what a great introduction for Mike. So, uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Mike. Today, we have the pleasure of uh, spending some time with the rules interpreter here for Cardinal Basketball Fish Association, Mike Preston. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining Adam and I today on the Inadvertent Whistle Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So today, um, one of the things that we thought we'd, we'd have some clarity on is we have a few schools that use the shot clock. Uh, we have some schools right. in the MAC as well as the IAC, and there seems to be some confusion with the shot clock, and we thought, you know, what better place to clear it up than here at the Inadvertent Whistle Podcast. Okay. So I wanted to go through uh, – you, you had an email sent out to the membership, so we're not going to read every nook and cranny of this, but I wanted to make sure that the officials uh, were aware of each of these areas. So first thing we're going to talk about is closely guarded. And the one thing that we want to make sure people are aware of is that there's no closely guarded uh, five-second count while dribbling. That's, uh, that's over the entire court. So can you uh, talk about the differences between the dribbling and holding and the five-second count? Yeah, so in our, uh, our public school games, we do have a closely guarded uh, situation during the dribble. And we measure that six feet from the forward foot of the ball handler to the forward foot of the defender. And so we switch hands from going from dribbling to holding to indicate that they get a new five seconds when going from 
holding to dribbling, and then again from uh, dribbling to holding, they get a new five seconds. But they can, um, in theory, they can dribble the ball if they have a 30-second shot clock while closely guarded the whole time and run out the shot clock for a whole 30 seconds while uh, dribbling the ball. There will be no closely guarded count in that situation. All right, perfect. And let's move on to the next one, the 10-second backcourt count and, and how that's administered. Uh, maybe let you just kind of give a little overview on that and maybe we can give a scenario or two. Sure. So we have to have great awareness, and all officials have to have great awareness of the shot clock, uh, especially when we have defensive pressure in the backcourt, because we're going to be using the shot clock to determine when a 10-second violation has occurred. So if um, the the, the 10-second count will start when a player legally touches the ball in the backcourt, uh, except during a jump ball or a rebound. Now, that is different from our public school, National Federation of High School Rules, where it says if A1's dribbling the ball in the front court and B1 knocks the ball into the back court, okay, the 10-second count will start as soon as the ball touches in the back court. Okay, but in uh, our MAC games and IAC games, it's not until the ball is legally touched in the backcourt that the 10-second count begins. And then we will have to look up at the shot clock to determine what our new number is going to be. So if that ball is legally touched in the scenario I described at, say, 23, our new number for them to get it back across into the front court would be 13. And all officials are going to have to glance up at the shot clock because if trail has a lot of pressure in the backcourt, they may not be able to uh, look and see exactly when that shot clock gets to 13. So, so let's clarify that real quick, Mike. If it is 23, mm-hmm. it, it, we're not waiting till 12. We're, as soon as it hits 13 is the number, because I know that there's been confusion in the past. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yes. Okay. All right, so th- that clears that up pretty easily. Um, let's talk about the shot clock and when it resets, because we have this, you know, 30 seconds to 20 seconds, and if it's a foul or a kicking violation or anything like that, can you kind of go through that piece? Sure. So there was a lot of confusion. This comes from the NCAA, and there was some confusion, but it was cleared up in a memo, and this will be the rule that we use, is that if there is a kicked or fisted ball anywhere on the court, if the shot clock is at 20 or above, it stays where it is, anywhere on the court. If it's at 19 or below anywhere on the court, we're going to reset to 20. Okay, and and for defensive fouls in the front okay. court? So for defensive fouls in the front court, we're going to uh, reset to 20 on 19 or below. If it's uh, 20 or above, the shot clock stays where it is. Um, now, if it's in the back court, no matter where the shot clock is, we will always reset it to 30. And... I had this situation happen in in a college game about a week ago, and we need to be very aware because we had a situation where A1 was dribbling the ball from backcourt to frontcourt, and as the dribbler was bringing the ball across the division line, we had a hand-checking foul. And I went to my partner and I said, wait a second, was that foul in the frontcourt? or the backcourt. I believe the shot clock was at 25, 26, something like that. It makes a difference because if it happened in the backcourt, we reset to 30. In the frontcourt, we would leave the shot clock where it is. 
I got kind of the deer in the headlights look briefly, and then you said uh, backcourt. So it was a full reset. Turns out he was a step in the front court, so we should have left it where it is. And we just need to be aware of that now. Okay. Good sense. That would be really good for communication from a crew as well. So exactly. um, before we get to throw-in spots and coaching boxes, is there anything else with the shot clock that our guys need to know? So um, I would just say anytime you have a whistle where there is no team control, you're always going to reset to 30. So if you have a, a try for goal that's in the air and a double foul occurs and the ball does not go in, it doesn't matter who has the arrow, you're always going to, or whether the ball strikes the ring, you're always going to reset to 30 in that case, regardless of who has the arrow, regardless of whether or not the ball strikes the ring. The same thing would go for an inadvertent whistle. Anytime there's no team control on an inadvertent whistle, you will always reset to 30, regardless of who has the arrow. Okay, that's good to know as well. So let's talk about throw-in spots. Uh, throw-in spots are a little bit different this year. They're also going to mirror the NCAA. Can you talk a little bit about the differences this year? Sure. So um, what we're going to be doing this year is for all uh, uh, stoppages of play that will re- that will result in a front-court throw-in uh, to a team getting the ball in their front court, we will uh, – I call we will inbound the ball at one of the four magic spots, which is either any either on either side of on either sideline the twenty eight foot mark or on the end line either three foot mark on three feet outside either lane line, if that makes sense. So um on most college courts that three foot mark is there. I don't believe it's going to be there for our schools. So we're going to have to uh force the players out of maybe about a step, step and a half, um, probably closer to two steps, actually, uh, to the three-foot mark. Even in the college game, the, the thrower in, they instinctively want to go to where that lane line meets the end line. But we have to now sort of shoo them out a bit to that three-foot mark. Um, and that's three foot out towards the three-point arc. Correct. Correct. Yes. Um, now, the... What, what we call sort of the line of demarcation. Does it go on the end line or does it go on the sideline? Um, that is determined by we're going to draw an imaginary line from where the sideline meets the end line, and it's a diagonal line that's drawn from where the sideline meets the end line to where the lane line meets the free throw line. Anything below that line will go to the end line, three-foot mark. Anything out above that line will go to uh, either 28-foot mark. The key differences between NFHS and this rule is anything that occurs inside the free-throw semicircle will now go to the 28-foot mark, not to the end line, which is where we would do under NFHS rules. Okay. That, that's good clarification to know. Yes. I now, I talked about the last – go ahead. I'm sorry. If I, I'm sorry. If I could just add one thing. For out-of-bounds, the ball will always go to that – Spot. We don't go to the 28 or three foot mark, and if the if the team that's entitled to the throw in calls timeout, they cannot buy themselves to one of the four magic spots. Okay, that's a great point. So if the ball gets deflected by the defender and goes out of bounds on the sideline near the end line, then that's where the ball is being thrown in at. We're not going to be going back to the 28 foot mark. Exactly. Exactly. Even if they call a timeout. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. 
All right, so the last piece of the puzzle is the coaching box. Now, we in the NFHS are, are aware of the change from 28 foot uh, all the way down to the end line, but they're going a little bit farther in this one. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right, so uh, they've adopted in the MAC and the IAC the 38-foot box. So what they're supposed to have, and I hope it's there, is a 28-foot mark, but now they're also, they also should have a 38-foot mark, and they can go 38 feet from the uh, end line, where the end line meets the sideline, 38 feet up uh, to coach their team. Now, what we have to be careful about is we need to make sure that we do not confuse the 38-foot mark with the 28-foot mark um, because uh, two things. Number one, if we're inbounding the ball on that sideline, if we just take a quick glance down and we see the 38-foot mark and assume that that's correct, we're going to be inbounding it at the wrong spot. That's problem one. Problem two is um, the 28-foot and the 38-foot mark is not going to be marked on the opposite sideline. So you have to look over and guess and sort of guesstimate where the proper throw-in spot should be. Again, don't be fooled. Don't look across at the 38-foot mark and assume that that's a 28-foot mark. Just take an extra second or two and make sure that you're looking across the correct line to uh, make sure your throw-in spot is correct. Okay, that's good. Now, they're also mirroring the NCAA rule as far as if the bench receives a technical foul. Is that correct? Uh, yes, they do not lose the box uh, um, if, if the bench gets a technical foul. Okay. All right, very good. So there's a lot of new things uh, for us to consider. You know, we're used to doing some games with shot clock, but now with some of these changes, it'll be really important for the officials. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're listening to Mike share this information, Two things I'd recommend is, first of all, I'd, I'd recommend that you print out the email and keep it in your bag uh, if you're going to one of the schools that does this. And the second thing is you might want to listen to this podcast again to go through some of the scenarios with Mike so that when you have a pregame, you and your crew can be better equipped. So, uh, Mike, is there anything else that you want to add to any of this that we talked about today? Yeah, if I could just add one more scenario really quickly. If A1 – commits a player control foul in the backcourt, commits a traveling violation in the backcourt, it's now going to be uh, Team B's ball in their front court. So we will inbound the ball at one of the four magic spots in that case, even though it occurred in the backcourt. If a team, uh, <clears throat> if A1's dribbling the ball in the backcourt and B1 hand checks A1 before the bonus is in effect, we will do that throw-in spot, just as we always have, as if this rule did not exist, okay? So it's going to be just under as it would under NFHS rules, except if that foul occurs in the free-throw semicircle, it will be taken out of bounds at the sideline, not the end line. Okay, and there is no advancement of the ball. If they have a rebound off of uh, a missed free-throw and call timeout, they can't advance it like they do in NCAA women's. It's still good. That is the correct. Spot. Okay, correct. Be- correct, yes. All right, very good. Mike, as always, uh, you know, again, the best rules interpreter in the country. We appreciate your time uh, and, and clarifying some of this because it will be confusing for some of us until we get out there, and we don't get to do it on a regular basis. So appreciate the information, and uh, thanks again. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Well, that's going to bring an end to podcast episode number three for the Inadvertent Whistle podcast. and. Got a, a few people we want to say thank you to. First of all, Mike Preston for giving us some background and information 
on the rule changes with the shot clock and the way the IAC and the MAC are going to do with the out-of-bounds and the coaching box. So thanks to Mike. Uh, special thanks also to Steve Gordon for joining us today in studio. Uh, he is a little upset that he didn't get to see Oreo, our producer, but uh, she'll be back next week after we get uh, her the right amount of, of, of doggy treats. So um, next uh, uh, podcast uh, will be who knows when. Uh, but we do have some uh, upcoming interviews that we're going to do. We're going to get a chance to speak with Tim Comer. Uh, Tim Comer is one of the three officials that worked the South Carolina State at NC State game. And uh, he was on, on there firsthand to see uh, the events that happened that day with the, the player that went in the cardiac arrest and give us some, some background information of what they dealt with as an officiating crew. So I think that will be pretty cool to listen to. Um, but, you know, going forward, we, we just want you, all of you that are listening, all seven of you, um, to really enjoy the holidays. Uh, remember what's important. I mean, family, friends, relationship, and be safe out there. And let's just make sure we come back at the beginning of next year with everybody in tow. So, uh, Adam, I'm going to let you finish it off. Well, I want to echo your comments and particularly thank Steve for joining us today. Um, hope that everybody has a wonderful holiday, a happy new year. Um, I'm quite honestly, I'm surprised that we've made it to our third episode. Um, I'm not sure if, if I quite honestly, I thought Scott was going to probably kill me, uh, particularly today. Uh, but once again, may today, may this be the only inadvertent whistle in your day. Happy holidays. Crashing, hit a wall. Right now, I need a miracle. Hurry up now, I need a miracle. the most so don't